Welcome to the Kintsugi Heroes podcast, where we share inspirational stories of everyday people going through different challenges and how they overcome them. Please be aware that the story you're about to hear may have moments of deeply felt emotions and personal experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. If you love this conversation, We'd love you to like and share it with your friends so we can continue to share more inspiration and hope to as many people as possible. Now, listen up for our next hero story. This conversation is with Terry James. Terry wanted to become an archaeologist when he was young, but the war in Vietnam changed all of that and he was conscripted into the Australian Army in 1966. He talks about his journey from that point on, the years of being in the war, and how that's impacted his life. It's a fascinating story, and for anybody who has never or ever heard of someone talking about their journey through being in a war and then having life challenges on top of that, it's really quite an interesting and challenging thing to comprehend. He has surrounded himself with amazing groups of people that have been his foundation and his support. So for me, this story is one that highlights the value of community and having, you know, the community as your bedrock. I just really loved hearing about his story and how he opened up. So I know you'll enjoy this one with Terry James. Hello, here we are another episode. It's Kintsugi Heroes and I'm here today with Terry James. How are you doing, Terry? Getting older by the second devil then, unfortunately. Well, that must make two of us. Yeah, that's right. I think we're all in that condition. Yes, I I think so. Well, I want to thank you for coming along and, and being open to sharing your story and spending time with me today. I know it's not always easy to share one's story and just want to honor you for being brave and courageous and showing up to share your story that will help others? Well, I've done this, I mean, not so much to this nth degree, but I, I have done lots of public speaking and lots of events, so I can feel free to chat about these kind of things, especially I spoke in the mentoring men on one session in detail. Well, we're keen as mustard, ready to dig in. I'm going to hand the mic over to you. Please take us back to the beginning. Uh, where does your story start? My story starts on about 6.15pm on the 5th of June, 1947. I guess that makes me one of the early baby boomers. Um, my mother was 29, my father was 40, so there's 11 years age gap. They met during World War II, married and had me. And 12 years later, they had another baby, my sister Anne, who sadly I don't see very often these days, and she's under different circumstances, which I won't go into. So that's when I started, back in 1947, which is actually 75 now. Sometimes I feel 75, other times I don't feel 75 in the mind. I was raised a Catholic. Uh, I'm not such a good Catholic these days. I went to St. Patrick's boarding school in Goulburn, did the leave certificate there in 1964. I always wanted to be a, a an archaeologist because I won the school prize for ancient history. I thought, what I'll do is I'll... I'll Work for a couple of years, save some money, travel to England, go to Liverpool, go and see the Beatles at the Cabin Club, then Carnaby Street in London, all those fabulous places of the early 60s, and do that. 
So I worked for a couple of years. Um, and sometime in 1966, I got this funny letter in the mail from the federal government that said, we want you for two years to do military service. So I was conscripted into the Australian Army, into the Australian Army on the 4th of October 1967. And for two years, I was a soldier. Unexpected. Um, I suppose knowing the things I know now and knew later, I could have got out of it if I wanted to, but I didn't. It was a thing to do in those days. Um, I felt that it was some kind of duty, even though with hindsight, you look back and you think, yeah, really, was it? No, was it the right thing to do? Was war right? Should we have been there in the first place? But that's what I well was in those days, and I had to kind of cope with that, okay. Well, I went through my recruit training down at Kapuka at Wagga, the Army Training Centre down there, three months recruit training. And that was tough. It was, but I was fortunate. I'd been at boarding school for three years, so I guess that helped me interact with those situations I needed to look after myself in. It certainly was a, a, a tough time down there for three months. When you graduate from the recruit training centre in the Army, they give you three choices of corps you want to go to. And I was a bit lazy, I suppose, and I thought, I want to go to Armoured Corps Artillery or Engineers. I was never really good at walking. So I uh, applied to those and I got infantry. None of what I wanted. They just wanted uh, bodies for Vietnam, basically, at the time. So I was in, I was, I was chosen in the infantry section, infantry corps, actually, it was called. Then I was sent to Singleton, the corps training in my army um, profession. I was then posted to the 5th Battalion Royal Australian Regiment, which is based at Holsworthy. At that time, there were nine battalions in the Royal Australian Regiment, and I was on the fifth. Our mascot was a tiger. I'm not sure if you can see the mascot here. It's a tiger with the fifth battalion motto on it. I never got that tattoo until about 10 years ago when my granddaughter gave me a tattoo voucher for Christmas, which is quite strange to me. So, because uh, they got little tattoos as well, they said, Pop, you need some tattoos. I said, No, I don't. But they did, and I got that. Yeah, you know, I was posted to 5RAO where I served in Australia for six months and then I went to Vietnam in kind of late January 1969. Spent there till October that year. I came home and I was discharged from the Army after two years. I thought about staying on, but I, I decided not to. After that, I had to decide what to do. I, I wanted to be an archaeologist, but there was no money in archaeology at the time. So I thought, okay, I'll study something with this good money and I, I, studied, I studied accountancy which is boring, but good money. Uh, and I thought, one day I might get back into archaeology, but I never did. So I've always in my life, I guess since I left school, I've been in the Army, I've done accountancy, uh, and I'm retired. So that's basically it. Um, I still love to watch uh, ancient history uh, shows on Foxtel, on the History Channel, especially about ancient Egypt. It's my thing and drives my wife insane because she hates it and loves movies. So that's where my youth was, uh, some misspent. Um, three years of boarding school it was wonderful. I made some great friends. And then before I went to boarding school, when I went to primary school, I made a friend when I was five, and I've got a photo of him at my fifth birthday party. So forward a bit to the army. I get posted at five hour at Hulls with me. I walk into the program one day there, and who I bump is a bad friend who I hadn't seen for 10 years. And I've now known him for 70 years longer than anybody in my family, longer than my sister, who is kind of 12 years younger than me. So some, knowing someone for 70 years is a big thing, I think, you know, and it makes me feel good to see him. And I'm going to see him on the 2nd of May at Warhope when we go for an army reunion up at there. I'll be staying at Fort Macquarie, but we're seeing all the old mates. So, um, yeah, the army was great. Um, 
and told me to be a nan. Well, it was even good then. Because you make the best friends in the world after your family. The army, or the military of any kind, Army, Navy, Air Force, but you know, <clears throat> there's a saying in the Army, especially, that um, the Navy navigates by the stars, the Army sleeps under the stars, and the Air Force books five stars. So we always say that to the Air Force, but we're making them feel a bit jealous and envious, you know. But in the Army, I didn't want to be in the infantry. I wanted to be, you know, riding around on a tank, a Centurion tank or something, or another personnel carrier. But now, I get to be so proud that I was one of the elite infantry soldiers of the Australian Army. I get to wear my lanyard, which is in the War Memorial uh, display case of the Cornsby RSL Club on the left-hand side. I get to wear what's called an infantry combat badge, and nobody else gets to wear those but infantry soldiers. I suppose you can say that because you, you survived. Now, there was a few occasions where I didn't survive. No, you didn't survive. I went through some tough times in Vietnam. I was there for uh, nine, nine, nine and a half months. Uh, the battalion was there for 12 months, and I had to come home because of my two-year commitment was up. But there got some tough times in there then. Um, I was in Delta Company, which is D for Delta. We were based away from our main battalion unit. We were up in what we call Sass Hill, especially the service regiment hill. We were based up there, so we had a bit of privacy, which was good. Um, we'd go out in operations for four to six weeks at a time. You're back in camp anywhere from four to five days, then go out again, depending on the operational time. You vary from anywhere from a week to six weeks. It was averaging about four to five weeks on the average. And I think if you look through the history of that war, you find that the soldiers have been and spent more time on the front line than any soldier in any war that Australia's been involved in. By no being intense as the um, as the trenches in World War One, but it was certainly more time on the front line. So that's what we get to be told anyway. And that's what we pass to our friends and associates. They know the true story. Um, I had a couple of major circumstances over there. Well, obviously, I never got killed on many occasions. Um, so it was very lucky to survive. Uh, I've been, ever since I got back when I was 22, I've been, you know, felt good about the fact that I did survive and felt lucky. But there were two occasions over there where I really nearly didn't survive. And um, one was called the Battle of Long Khan. Um, that's the first place I kill someone. It's not a nice feeling, but you don't think about it when you're doing it. Shooting somebody in the back is what, what I did. And you just do those things. You sprung an ambush. In war, it's you or them. You just have to do what you have to do to survive. At the time, it didn't affect me, but it took a long time to actually get back to me that that ha- happened. Uh, and the same, uh, same operation, I lost a good friend who was killed. Um, we used to have forward scouts, two, two forward scouts in each section, and you'd alternate. Uh, one day you'd be the scout, next to the other scout would be front in the front. So one day, with my turn to be up front, my friend said to me, no, I said, I'll take it again today. I said, no, okay, it's my turn. He said, no, no I'll do it. We walked, we walked into an ambush and he got hit badly. And he's, he died five minutes in front of me after four hours. I couldn't get to him. So I've almost a bit of survivor guilt because of that fact, you know. Um, he was a good friend, and sadly, he's, he was due to come home the following week to be home for the birth of his first child with his wife. It was very sad. Um, so circumstances like that make it tough. But you go on, because you have to go on. It's kill or be killed in war, and that's what it's all about. Another incident was... Uh, a battle called the Battle of Binbar, which is on the battle lines of the Royal Australian Regiment after Long Tan. Binbar was a village, a regional village, uh, well known for its rubber 
rubber plantations and processing. And it was a French village originally, but it was quite a big town by Vietnamese standards. And one day um, we got a call, our battalion got a call from the uh, village chief saying they'd been overrun by the North Vietnamese in DC. Could we come out to help? We, I was on what was called, Delta Company was called the Ready Reaction Company on that occasion. Normally the company a bit, but she had about 120 men. We had about 70 because people were away on R and Western convalescence and R and R wounded and R and R and doing courses somewhere. So we we had about 70, 75 men out of 120. So we were bundled into our personnel carriers quickly and, and driven out there with support by helicopter gunships and Centurion tanks. Uh, and we spent three days house to house fighting in the Battle of Bar. something we weren't trained for because we were trained for jungle warfare. And um, it was different. Three days, house to house fighting. Fortunately, we only lost one person. It was very stressful. I can't remember much about it, to be honest. I remember everything about my tour in Vietnam, but those three days of what I did was so intense that it really had an impact on me. But I hadn't realised for a long, long time. I try to think back now, and I can't remember a thing of what I did, apart from the end of it. We had to drag bodies into the central square, hundreds of bodies, what we call the enemy, PC, NVA, regular army. And it happened the day after my 22nd birthday. And I thought, oh, this could be my last birthday. But it turned out not to be. I was very fortunate. I was very close on many occasions, but we survived. And that was what really got me going over there. Um, house to house fighting, up close and personal with bayonets, that kind of thing. You don't see much about that in the press these days, but it was. And like I said, hundreds of bodies later on, I think. Um, they fought bravely, as did we, you know. It changed my life. Not immediately. I got home from war and I tended to put it out of reach of everything. I just conveniently forgot about everything. I was discharged. We came home, we went to North Head uh, Army Depot where we were discharged. We had to come in every day for a week. They put us on parade, call our names off, and we could go away and then come back in the afternoon. That was it. And they, at the end of that period, they would sign a document and they, instead of calling me, uh, Private James, which I was at the time, Mr. James, by an officer. So then you realise you're out of the army. What do I do now? You know, because prior to prior to the army, I'd been working uh, in the Department of Government Transport. I'd done it. I was working as a bus conductor for about a year, trying to save that money to go, go to England. You know, the conscription rule and that. So I went back to there, and I said, "Don't be bus conductor again for a while." So I work at one of my So I went and worked in the bus depots doing revenue clerk, collecting all the money that they bought in, counting all that. I guess that led partly to my accounting interests. Um, so I did that and um, it was, um, I decided I couldn't do that for much longer. What do I do? So I applied to join the Commonwealth Public Service and I joined the Overseas Telecommunications Commission where I worked for 11 years while I studied accountancy. Then over the years I, I, I graduated from the Institute of Technology then, which is now the University of Technology, uh, and I started working in major corporate entities like Lightsabers Confectionery and whole pile of things like that. You know, yeah. Cadbury's. I've set under the Cadbury's from there, and then um, I went to um, a number of building companies as well, kind of thing. You know, Names called me quickly. So I worked as an accountant for a, a long time, and I made my life. And I put community, put everything military-wise to the back of my mind, and forgot a lot about it. And then. My best friend in Sally served with me, but Sally died 11 years ago from lung cancer. Um, he was my best friend. The best manager at each other's weddings, and we saved each other's lives on a few occasions in Vietnam. He said, Look, he said, 
you're not doing very well. Once you go and see the lead ambassador to consideration at Granville and try and get a war service teacher. So I did. I went and saw them and um, they were very helpful and um, they brought everything back. All the memories came flooding back. Good memories, bad memories, you name it. Kept working for a few years and then in April 2000, I got a part of work. I was a financial controller for Paramount Pictures at the time, which is a great job because we had our own private uh, cinema. We go and see previews, all the movies before they came out, and it was great. You know, good staff. When I went to work one day, I said, What am I doing? I can't do it anymore. I've lost what I'm doing, you know. Uh, and so I had to retire, and I applied for a TPI pension for the Student Missions Affairs Department. I got that. I was a bit of a wreck. Um, it just all came floating back all of a sudden. And that's what, that's what caught me off guard because I wasn't expecting to do that. When I came back from Vietnam, my mother said I turned into a hard, cold person, which I think you've got to do. And I, when you're 22 and you're a hard, cold person, you think, is that real or not? But I think it was. Because it changed you. Or does that? No matter. In between all that, before I retired, I got married when I was 31, I think it was. Actually, she proposed to me, which is unusual. We got married, but it lasted seven years, unfortunately, and she couldn't cope with the stress that I was going through at the time. So she was worried about Agent Orange to kick me in with children and all that kind of stuff. So we eventually got divorced, and um, I lived a life of Riley for a couple of years. I met the love of my life through 1987. We're still together. Um, so that's great. But um, just even going back further, back to Vietnam, I was, um, when you're in Vietnam, you get what's called R&R, &R, Rest and Recreation six days, seven nights was. And I always wanted to go to Hong Kong. So I ended up going to Hong Kong. And um, I was there in July 1969 when they were trying to land on the moon. It was great watching that. I think they even had colour TV back then, back in 1969 in Hong Kong. So far advanced on us. It was great. Six days and seven nights, wonderful. You know, we met a lot of Americans over there. Even in Vietnam, we, we didn't meet many Americans in Vietnam, but on one operation, we did. I know I'm clicking backwards and forwards here a little bit, but um, in Vietnam, the Americans were different to us. They did six weeks basic training and were sent over individually, essentially. We did a lot of training, we sent over as units, so we were combined, organised. Americans are kind of a bit different. Much as I love them, that they didn't even know Australia existed to a certain degree. I, when I was flying over to, to Hong Kong at R&R, &R, I was sitting next to an American soldier after about half an hour on the plane, said, we're chatting away. He said, he said, oh, God. He said, do you guys in Australia speak English? I said, nah, of course we don't, mate. So then that's the kind of thing we had. And we were a security company for one of their operations. Once they had a big unit called the Rome Plows, big bulldozers. They put them out in the lines, still steel covers between them, go forward and knock down the jungle to you know, get rid of the hiding places for the VC. And we were a security company for one of their operations for about a month. They were living in the rifle luxury in their, in their base camp with the bulldogs. They had an ice cream factory in the middle of their, their base camp. Meanwhile, we were living on the perimeter, going and patrolling through the swamps and being de-leached every half hour, probably through leeches, you know. So they had it great over there, but we had it pretty rough compared to what they had. But they were still nice guys, but not the nice guys. And that's when I went, this, this guy in the plane on the way to Hong Kong, I said, yeah, of course we speak English, mate. We speak better than you do. <laughs> that was a nice guy. So, you know, I'm going forward again now, back to when I was married. Um, we didn't want, she didn't want to have any kids straight away because the potential of Agent Orange. Sadly, she had one abortion because she didn't um, want to have the child because of that problem. 
we weren't we were engaged at that point in time. We weren't married, so I was unsure if I wanted the child then or not. And no, I so regret it now. So regret it now. But that's happened. You can't change history. Some you can't change history about a war. Uh, and um, so she had an abortion, and I ended up not having any kids of my own. So I got back to normal life, and and um, I was still, at that point in time, I still put Vietnam behind me to a certain degree. And I uh, started all the friends that I'd made over there in the army. I'd, I'd given up on for years. Just hadn't seen anybody, even though my best friend, Gary Smith, his name was. Um, very simple name, but not a simple guy, a lovely bloke. He got in touch with me and he said, look, mate, he said, you're not doing the best. You've got to go out and see the Vietnam Veterans Federation in Granville, which I did and saw them, and put the process through the Department of Veterans Affairs and got, I was lucky to get that because I was falling apart at the time, had to give up the work situation, as I explained before. I didn't know what to do. Um, but by that stage, I'd met my new partner, Lynn, and she, she was divorced, just divorced, two kids, Susan, 17, and Stephen, 14. And we've been together ever since 1987. Now, Sue's 53 and Steve's just turned 50. So they're to me like my children, even though it was tough at first. I didn't want to try and replace their father because you don't do that. You don't come in that kind of stage of teenage and try and replace a parent. You're just going to be a friend, and that's what I tried to be. Um, it was easy with Steve and with Sue because she was all set in her ways, and she was a teenager and left school, and Steve was sort of school at that stage. But now... Best friends kind of thing, you know, and their children, I'm pop to their children. So Sue's got three children and Steve's got two. Two. Yeah, I'm, I'm pop to them. Yeah, I love being pop. Yeah. Couldn't think of anything better in her life than being a grandfather, even though not by blood, but by heart. Yeah. So I love them to pieces and I think they love me to pieces too. So that's how it's been. And um, what happened next? Um, I started seeing psychiatrist. I saw a psychiatrist every month for about five years, five or six years. Um, I gave that up a couple of years ago, but maybe even more than five or six years, maybe ten years, I think. Um, I contacted my old army friends and remade those contacts again. Uh, I became involved in the RSL and ex-service organisations. I never wanted to be an RSL member from the time I got out of the army, but in about 1996, my best friend again, Gary, taught me into getting involved in the RSL, which I did. He's, he's, he's responsible for a lot of things. He got me into golf. I'll get into that in a minute. But um, so Gary said, you should have come in involved in the RSL, which I did. I joined the RSL. Then I got heavily involved. And then I got elected as honorary secretary of Hornsby RSL sub-branch for five years. And then I got elected as president of Hornsby RSL sub-branch for five years, which I gave up three years ago. So I was heavily involved in the RSL in New South Wales. Uh, and, and I was responsible for organising all the ANZAC ceremonies. I was on Paul Pletcher's um, uh, National Committee for the Centenary of ANZAC. And um, I had one of my guests at one of my events was Ben Robert Smith, DC unit. We know the Ben's going through dramas at the moment, but, you know, I think if they do any better, you can find that they support Ben rather than the politicians who try to get you at him. So that's what I did. So years ago when I had this really bad nightmare of it, her brain had been thrust in my chest very slowly, very, very slowly, and I jumped up screaming in the middle of the night. You know, I, I remember that vividly. I gradually wore myself out of those. I don't know how I did it, but I did. So I don't have those much anymore. But I have the odd dream here and there about military service. You can't be involved in a, in a war which kills and be killed and not think about it for the rest of your life, I don't think. 
my time with the RSL was great. I was heavily involved in community events. And like I said, my friend Gary had passed away. Uh, he got me involved in golf 20, 23 years ago. He said, I may never go to golf. And I said, no, nah, I'm good at golf. I was a squash player. Anyway, I went and played golf and I stayed and I still play there. Um, I've been playing there for 22 years. And of those 22 years, I've been treasurer for 20 years. Anybody wants you to be treasurer when they find your retired accountant. That always happens to be the case. So I play golf every week. Um, I've had $3 in one over the years, and I'm very proud of that. Still got a reasonably high handicap, but still had those $3 in one. So I play there every week at Fox Hills, which is about seven hills away, a long way from Astor where I live. But it's worth the trip because I love it. It's a great place to be. Like I said, my mother said I was a hard person. I got back. I think I've softened a lot now over the years with my involvement with Lynn and the, and the kids and the grandkids. Yeah, I think they've helped make me a better person than what I was. I was never really in trouble. I just was a cold. Mum was right, a cold, hard person. You know? The sad thing about it was she died 12 years ago from dementia at 96. Um, and she didn't know me in the end, so I'd like her to think that she would have known me as a better person because of what, what I've done. My recollections and reflections on life, people, I think, um, don't even more, don't even more emotional issues. That's which I did for a long time. I didn't know I even had emotional issues until um, one day I kind of cracked, you know? But I got back into the army because she's second family. We'll never, ever lose the connection with army friends. Um, recollections, look, I, I've, over the years I've given speeches at many schools and, and, and and community organisations. I still give speeches in schools, even though I'm not involved as president of the RSO anymore. Um, over the Anzac period and Remembrance Day period and all those kind of events which significantly still alive. And I've always um, tried to tell the young kids these days that war is not good. It's started by politicians, but fought by young men who commit their lives to a war. So they should do everything they can do to prevent future wars. Sadly, I don't think that wars are going to stop a lot of these humans on this world. Um, you can always hope, can't you? you know? It's one of those things that um, I always try to convince young kids to do. Sorry for the interruption. This is Ian Westmoreland, the founder of Kintsugi Heroes, and thank you for listening to this story from one of our amazing heroes. Our mission is for these stories to provide hope and inspiration to people experiencing life challenges and to also educate the broader community on how best to provide support. If you would like to help us continue to produce more hero stories and cover more adversity themes, we would welcome all donations. These can be made via our website, kintsukiheroes.com.au. The donate function is at the bottom of the homepage. We'd also welcome any feedback. You can email me direct using ian at kintsukiheroes.com.au. Now let's get back to the story. My life now, very happy. I'm 75, like I said. Um, I enjoy my golf. I enjoy socialising with friends. Um, I don't see my sister Sarah because... So I've concentrated on the family that I've got. Not my natural family, but in my wonderful family. I'm still on the national committee of my five-hour hour association. As a matter of fact, I've got a, uh, a Zoom meeting on Tuesday next week yeah, for that. Um, and I'm going to, in the 2nd of April, I'm going to Warhope at Northern New South Wales for an army reunion with my company and my union, Delta Company. And we're staying at Port Macquarie, so 
I was seeing lots of friends in about 40 odd guys are going, so that's great. We've lost probably a lot. You know? And I had from boarding school, my, and my next best group of friends are from boarding school, of course, because I spent three years there in Goulburn, cold in winter, freezing in winter, hot in summer. But you make great friends there too, and we see each other regularly in what's called the Sydney chapter. And everybody that I know that's still alive comes to Sydney in December for Christmas function. That's great. So there's two groups in the group. I've already got three groups in my life family, army, school. And that's where you go. It's great. Um, I live in a townhouse at Asclis, which I was a chairman of the Strata Plan for a while. I gave that up as well. So I'm still on the committee. It's a great place to live. We're the old folks. So they look after us well. The people next door in, lovely in their family. They bring meals to us occasionally. Uh, we have, uh, with the other people around in their 40s and 30s and some even 50s, we have drinks in the driveway on Saturdays and things like that. You know, we have we have um, Christmas functions in the driveway. We have um, Halloween in the driveway. We have all those sort of things. Easter in the driveway. You know, so it's a great little community place here at Ashworth. And I'm so happy that um, the young guys think of a lot of us enough to be participate with us in what we do, you know, and uh, enjoy our company. So we tend to leave earlier than they do, of course. So that's what we do. And me and Clay won bowls twice a week. I play bowls. I, actually, I was on the board of a bowling club for a couple of years as well, but I gave that up last year because I'm not a bowler. My interest wasn't there. They wanted me on to fill a casual vacancy. Trying to convince me to become treasurer. I said, no, I don't want to do that. I'm treasurer of my golf club. That's enough. You know, they don't get paid for that either. So, you know, so that's where, that's where we go. And um, that's life. And um, enjoy it. The grandkids, well, Sarah's 27 this year. She's got a partner in Ignatius in Spanish, and they bought a unit together at Lane Cove a couple of years ago. Charlotte turns 25 next Thursday, and Georgia turns 20 in November. And Sarah, the oldest, she's, a, she's got a degree in a master in physiotherapy. Georgia's got a degree in business. And Charlotte's doing a university at UTS for nursing. Around our family, we've got nursing, physiotherapist, uh, and her child's boyfriend, James, he's doing paramedics. So we've got a paramedic, a physiotherapist, a potential nurse, and my son-in-law's brother is a theatre nurse at Royal North Shore Hospital. So we've got all the medicals covered for our family. But hopefully, whenever it gets down to, down to, you know, to health-wise, we're looked after by the family. So it's a lovely thing to have. So that's about my life at the moment, I think. You know, I'm in a good place, reasonably good place. I have moments still where I think about you can't ever get war out of your system. As like I say, um, I tell the kids when I speak to them, the war's no good. So you've got to try and prevent war as best you can in the world. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? Just look at uh, Ukraine. You know, it's one of those places. You get people like that. Great people uh, Great people die. Horrible people like that in the future and don't. So you think about those kind of things. That's what I tell the people. I was giving a speech a couple of deep down once we go to public school. I spoke to the whole school, and then they asked me to go and speak in year four, and I spoke to year four, and um, one of the kids, one of the boys, probably about year four, that's probably about nine or ten or something, I think it is, eight or nine, maybe, and he said, oh, he said, oh, he said Mr. James, he said, what kind of gun did you have? I said, oh, you probably wouldn't know it was a black one. He said, oh, was it an M16? I said, oh, yeah, you know, don't you? you know? But they know. And then walking out the gate, there's a young kid, he's probably about five or six, uh, just in basic primary school. He looked up at me and he said, he said Mr. James, I think you must have served in the army with my great-great-grandfather. And I thought, oh, God, no. <laughs> potentially, potentially your great-grandfather. So perceptions of age is what the kids are. I love speaking to schools like that. You know, it's great. 
And uh, I do that still regularly, even though not as much as I used to because I'm not president of the RSL anymore. I let that to somebody else now. I did my bit. And, um, but I still like speaking at schools and, and social community organisations. Sometimes you can't even shut me up. Sarah, you've got a lot of it. It is a great story. Thank you so much. Uh, I have to say, you're pretty much the same age as my father. Yeah. <laughs> it does not make me feel so old. No, no, it's okay. He's, he's sprightly and young, just like you. He was inscripted into the army, just like you. He must have got the letter in the post. He did his time, but he didn't go over to Vietnam. So uh, he got stationed at home. He was one of the admin staff, but I can't remember why that was. I'm intrigued to go and ask him how, how he got that position. I feel, I feel a bit, to a certain degree, I feel a bit sorry for the guys like your father because you get two years into the army and you don't achieve a lot. You don't get a lot out of it kind of thing, you know. Uh, I'm not saying fighting wars a lot, but, but you see if you survive a war, you get certain benefits. Yeah, that your father might not get, you know, but he, get, I guess he was out of harm's way all the time, wasn't he, you know, which is good. But he did his bit for the country, and that's fabulous. That's all you can ask for. can't say I've ever spoken to someone apart from my great uncle who's been in a war. So I'm really privileged. I feel privileged today to, to speak with you about this. Describe your story really beautifully, quickly, and I know that there's a lot of detail there, and I also accept that it was 53 years ago. And you've got it, it fascinates me, the human mind, body, emotions, and how when you were in that village, you have no recollection of it. I'm thinking about that and I'm going, when you were in combat going door to door, can you remember with the locals still there, the people that lived in the houses, were they all there still? They had, we had to evacuate most of them, but they also had cellars. A lot of them went into their cellars. And so it was house to house fighting. And you had to take into account, you couldn't tell who the enemy was all the time. When you're talking about um, BC especially, NVA, regular and North Vietnamese Army people had uniforms on. BC did. So you just couldn't always tell who was who. And we had a, we had a task force base down at a um, place called Newy, uh, Buntow on the coast. Uh, and that's where the task force headquarters was. I was based at Newy, Dad, further inland. Uh, but down at Buntow, they had what's called the Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Pool. I think you can guess why Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Pool was named because Harold wasn't very good in the water. Uh, and we used to go down there once every uh, 72 hours regularly. It goes, I don't know if you know the song, I was only 19. And in that, there's some verse saying 32 hours, 36 hours regularly in Bung right, So that was it. So you go down there maybe twice during the time I was there, lucky enough. We had the swimming pool there, and the local greeting was to cleaning it. And they were cleaners everywhere, kind of thing, basically. But one night on, on, a, on an ambush, killed some VC. And so one of those VC was on a swimming pool attendant. So you just can't tell who's friend and who's foe in those circumstances. A bit like the guys, young guys in Afghanistan faced over recent years, you know, also, also Afghanistan and Iraq, but certainly like that. And that's what I said to Ben Robert Smith please, you know, just be proud of what you've done, no matter what they say. Um, you can't fight it. A win a war against terrorists and insurgents by fighting quickly. And I, I wouldn't like to tell you what we had to do. I just won't tell anybody that. My family knows nothing, basically. We need to talk amongst ourselves. Yeah, you just don't know who the enemy is in those circumstances. Yeah, it's pretty big for all of us that have never been a part of a war. All we can do is imagine. You know, we have movies, books, we have stories. Hopefully, everyone listening to this story is just grateful for the presence that you had over there, you and your, and your battalion and your, your unit, 
what you did, the bravery, and it sounded like you you knew you were there. You were Tiger. You were there on behalf of Australia. You were there. You had a mission to complete, and you did it with bravery. And you did your your body also. You know your your mind shutting things out did what it needed to to cope. We were young and cool. I came home at sixty five kilos. You know now I'm what eighty four or something. You know. So we were young and fit and healthy kind of thing, you know. Our brains might have been a bit addled when we got back for a while. So eventually, kind of, it wore away, but not completely. Never does. Never does. And never worked for anybody's caught in the war. And that's what you tell the kids. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, when you've caught up with your other war veterans, have do they also have the, the nightmares and, and the flashbacks? And Most of, I've never met anybody who doesn't, to be honest. You know, they have issues. Yeah. I mean, Agent Orange was a big issue at one stage, but I don't know many people who were affected by Agent Orange. I know most who were affected by PTSD like I was because I've had that kill survivor complex when my friend got killed instead of me. And I guess we did kill people. But the first one you do is kind of, you know, he thinks I've killed somebody. Yeah. It's not right. And, and with hindsight, wonderful hindsight, I believe. We should not have been in Vietnam, but it was a time. There was the mentality of the world at the time. Stop the yellow wars from coming south. Support our allies, the Americans, who have been asked to help the South Vietnamese. Uh, no, 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 it carries on like that, right? Hindsight's alone. We shouldn't have been there in reflection. Nobody should have been there. It's their country. They haven't fought it out amongst themselves. But look at the war going on today. Same thing, basically. Indeed, indeed. And, and I think your perspective and experience is so welcome, but also wise and you were saying about your, you like the way that your neighbours are all different ages except you and your wife, Lynn, and how you get together and have the drinks and all of that. Of course, you know, of course, you've, you've lived so many more years beyond us and you have just, got, you radiate this warmth and this joy. Good on you for being so open to life, you know, and you've got these beautiful people around you. And I love how you've given back to your community year after year after year, decade after decade, and constantly served and continued to serve. Yeah, I've, done, I've done a lot in the community since, since then. Yeah, I have done a lot. Yeah, but uh, I'm coming back a little bit now. There's been treasure in my golf club. 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 There's a big 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 treasure in my golf club. Well, love me, you know. And we're trying to say to the girls, come on, girls, we want great grandchildren. Come on, you know. And my daughter says, we want grandchildren as well, Dad. My grand, my son-in-law calls me popular. He's fifty-six, you know. That's beautiful. See, you are. The blood, the blood thing doesn't matter. Just like you've got those groups of friends from the army, from school. Yeah, it's in the heart. Yeah, that's right. And I've got, you know, like I said, we've got three families. Family one, family at home, family two army, and family three boarding school, which is great. You know, we see each other a lot. Thank you. I just want to wrap up and, and ask you, I ask everybody this, and hopefully this still resonates with you and your story, and that is 
if there's anyone listening to this now who resonates or maybe who's not heard or realised what it took for our soldiers to go to war or maybe there's someone else who has been a soldier at war who's listening to this, is there anything you'd like to say to them right now? Duty done. Duty done. You know, to the regiment. That's about it, really. I mean, you can't say much more than that. Yeah. I was fortunate, which I never got wounded. Um, came close very many times, came close to dying many times, but I was fortunate. So, you know, I've got health issues here, there, and everywhere, but I don't complain because that's life. You know, well, people are a lot worse off than me. I see the, I see the floods in New South Wales, the floods overseas, the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. I think, God, how lucky am I? You know, ever since I got home to more, day one, I've been thankful. Can't do more than that. That's a beautiful way to be. Thank you, Terry. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Evelyn, wonderful. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kintsugi Heroes. Please like and share the show to your friends so we can get this out to even more people. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out using the contact details below and join us next week for our next Heroes story. Until then, keep being you and remember that we are all heroes in our own unique way. Only when it's broken Only when you're broken Only when you're broken